0: I would encourage you to turn in your uh, copy of the Scriptures to the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. That's page 562 in your uh, pew Bible, if you're using that Bible. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. We'll be beginning in verse 2 of chapter 5 and going through verse 3 of chapter 6. Solomon Solomon chapter Five we will mostly be hearing from the the wife of the couple that are telling their story here in this book. She will begin by recounting to us a dream, and then she will be challenged by the others, and then she will respond again in verse ten. but we begin now hearing the word of God from Solomon Solomon chapter five and verse two. she says this. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, From my head, for my head is wet with dew and locks from the drop of the night. Oh, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hands tripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when, I, when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell you that you tell him that I am sick with love. The others respond, What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you adjure us? She responds, My beloved is radiant and ready, distinguished among ten thousand His head is the finest gold, his locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns, set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. He is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So they respond, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? She says, well, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's. And my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless the reading and particularly the preaching of your word this day. That we would know our own sin, but as it would be revealed to us in a way that shows us more our need of our Savior. The way in which he has come to be our beloved pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I was going to begin by asking how many of you have ever seen The Wheel of Fortune, but maybe I should ask how many of you here have never seen a single episode of The Wheel of Fortune? You don't have to be a fan to be, uh, have one time in your life or another happen to catch an a episode of that show. It's on every day of the week. And if you, if you like to watch or you don't like to watch uh, The Wheel of Fortune, you probably know they love to give away Vacations. Every episode there's one puzzle, uh, and if you solve the puzzle, you get a vacation. And these vacations, you know, they're never to Detroit or uh, Siberia. They're always someplace warm, close to a beach. So the announcer can say, you yes, know, seven days, six nights, and they'll show you know, the perfect pools, and they'll show the people uh, on the beach sipping cocktails, you know, all ex- all exclusive, all, ex- all expenses paid, uh, airfare covered from your local major airport, you know, this and that. You know, $8,000 goes into your total, and if you win the prize puzzle, you almost always are going to win the game on Wheel of Fortune. And it just sounds lovely. Then you start thinking about all the things the announcer didn't mention when he was telling you about your trip to the Bahamas or to Barbados or to Belize or any other tropical place that starts with the letter B. He never mentions uh, the fact that your uh, flight was canceled, that you missed the first day of those six days, seven nights. He forgets to mention that your luggage was delayed. and Now you're two days out without uh, the vacation that you wandered. Uh, he never mentions that the all-expenses-paid, ex, all all-exclusive uh, resort doesn't include those service fees for every Mai Tai you order there at the swim-up bar. Never mentions the fact that, oh, you forgot you weren't supposed to drink the water, and now you've lost two more days to an intestinal uh, bug, shall we say. Never mentions perhaps the worst of all you're going to owe the, the 40% California windfall tax on that vacation because you just won that prize here in Los Angeles, and they're going to make sure they get uh, at least their fair share, perhaps a little bit more. All that to say is it looks great, it sounds great, uh, but there's a few things that you may uh, need to know about that the announcer is not going to mention. And as I was reading uh, through this text this morning from Song of Solomon, I couldn't help but think about uh, the the delight and and the purity and the joy of the first of four chapters of Song of Solomon come up hard against, oh yeah, here's the rest of the story here in Song of Solomon chapter 5 paid attention to what uh, was going on in this text as this, a wife uh, recounted her dream, you noticed that all wasn't well in paradise. You noticed uh, that uh, the reality of life in a fallen world has crept into this marriage. So as we look at what this means for us as the people of God, whether we are married or not, whether we are young or old, We'll see this in three ways. We'll begin by noting the really the abject despair of the first eight verses of our text, verses two to nine. But we'll see it as the end in despair. We'll see it uh, goes to affirmation beginning in verse ten, and concludes with renewal in the first three chapters, first three verses. Excuse me, of chapter six. Despair countered with affirmation. And culminating in renewal. Well, we begin with the despair. Beginning in verse 2, we have another dream. You may recall last time we, we had a, a dream in which uh, the wife uh, recounted uh, perhaps a nightmare that she had. And we, as we recall, when we, we, we spoke about this dream, we said that just because it's a dream doesn't mean that it's uh, not a part of reality. It means that it's a, a heightened picture of reality you can uh, you can depict things in a dream that you might not uh, depict in real life and you notice this dream is a little weirder than the last one it's a little odder than the last one there's something acute being described here there's something sharp going on she tells us in verse 2 i slept but my heart was awake that means this is a dream and she dreams uh, a sound she dreams that her beloved has come to her and in verse 2 asks her, basically, for intimacy. He is uh, seeking to woo her. Although, as you pay attention to the cues, he seems to be a little impatient. Perhaps he is even demanding. And she uh, responds by being indifferent, verse 3. She says, well, I, I've already put off my garment. How can I put it on? I've already washed my feet. You know, she's making these excuses in her dream of why she does not Uh, want to be with her beloved. Verse 3 is all about uh, lame excuses. But eventually, uh, the man is persistent. Verse 4, he's uh, continuing uh, to seek to arouse his wife, and she uh, begins to respond in verse 4 and verse 5. She says, all right, I'm going to arise out of my bed, come to you, open the door, whatever. But she's overplayed her hand, (laughs) because now he's made herself scarce. How many romantic comedies have you seen this play out? Demanding man takes a woman longer to warm up, and uh, when she's finally ready, the man has made himself scarce. Open the door, verse 6, he's turned and gone. Where has he gone? Uh, And she uh, now is the one seeking after him. In verse 7, she's uh, dreaming that she's going around town, but she meets the night watchmen. She meets those uh, making the rounds, protecting the peace of the city, and she dreams that they beat her up. They wonder, what's going on here? Why would she dream that the night watchmen have have beat her up? Uh, One uh, commentator, Ian Duguid, writes this, The irony is profound. The one who did not want to get dressed in order to meet her beloved, in verse 3, Now has her dressing taken away, her clothing taken away from strangers. In verse 7, the watchman of the walls, part of whose job was apparently to guard against illicit sexual encounters, now punish her for her unwillingness to pursue a lawful sexual encounter with her husband, do good rights. Remember, this is a dream. The the night watchmen of Israel were not going around beating up wives. This is a dream. But she... For some reason um, has this dream. Perhaps uh, the violence is a sign of how defeated she feels. Perhaps she feels unsafe. Perhaps she feels unprotected because her husband is nowhere to be found. She feels vulnerable. The Uh, The lack of of synchronicity in their marriage, the the fact that they are not on the same page has, and we'll talk more about what that means in a minute, but for now it has caused her so much despair that she dreams that she's unsafe, unprotected, beat up. So she adjures the daughters of Jerusalem in verse 8. If you find my beloved, again, in her dream, you don't tell him that I'm sick with love. If you find him, she says, But after getting uh, guff, after getting uh, uh, perhaps a less than warm reception from the watchman in verse 7, now she receives uh, what seems to be sass and mockery from the women in verse 9. I I think you have to read these questions, verse 9, in a taunting tone. The women say to her, what's your beloved more than any other beloved? Oh, most beautiful among women. Uh, Perhaps a little jealousy or tongue-in-the-cheek there. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you address? In other words, they say to her, what's so special about this husband of yours that you think you have to put us under oath to go find him and tell him where you are? And this is shocking. In the light of the first four book, uh, chapters of this book, this at least should be shocking to you as you see the, the tragedy of the way in which sin has entered into this picture. But aren't you kind of glad this is here? <laughs> are kind of glad that, that Scripture is uh, realistic? are kind of glad that Scripture didn't leave this chapter out? What is the point of including this dream that the woman has? Well, for, for first and perhaps most obviously, the Scripture is telling us that no marriage is perfect. And there's no need to pretend like yours is. There's no need uh, to put on airs and pretend like there's never any conflict between you and your spouse. If, if you're not married, if you're thinking of marriage in the future, the message is don't uh, expect perfection. Don't expect Hollywood endings. And, and if you're counseling, or if you're a parent, don't uh, give that expectation to your children. That you'll find Prince Charming and he'll, he'll waltz you off on his white steed and everything will be peachy and dreamy and wonderful. Don't be surprised in your marriage when conflict arises. That doesn't mean it's time to throw in the towel. If if we put up this false expectation of, of marriage and you have, you know, the young starry-eyed lovers who are, you know, think everything's going to go well. And they get married and the, the honeymoon period lasts however long the honeymoon period lasts. And then they have that first argument and they're like, I don't know what to do. No one told me about this. I, am un, I This was not expected. I thought I was going to be, you know, on that uh, honeymoon period forever. Scripture tells us, no, no marriage is perfect. But it also tells us that just because marriages will have conflict, that doesn't mean it's okay. Oh, you know, if all marriages have conflict and we're having conflict, then yeah, okay. That's just a fact of life, as it were. No, there is real sin here. This is not the way it is supposed to be. The man is impatient, he's demanding. She uh, perhaps is uh, self-centered. Uh, perhaps the dream of being up, beat up is sourced in the guilt that she feels. Not sure. Of course, it doesn't always mean in marriage that if there's conflict, both spouses are at fault. Sometimes it is only the husband's fault. and The husband must confess that. Sometimes it is only the wife's fault. But if your marriage is anything like mine, this is the time I don't look at my wife, it's usually a little bit of both. <laughs> Maybe a little bit more mine. But often, often, often it's both. But not always. And We often uh, perhaps want to rush into assuming that it is uh, one person or the others. When actually it's our job not to point the finger at the other one, is it? But it's to look inside our own heart. But if this text tells us that no marriage is perfect, but that doesn't mean it's okay. It's, it's a sign of sin and of uh, corruption of our own hearts and brokenness. Ultimately, it means we cannot look to others for affirmation and approval of our marriage. If you were going to look for the watchman of the city for affirmation and approval of your marriage, what would you get? Well, evidently you would get violence in her dream. Look to the, her, her fellow sisters of the community, you get sarcasm and sass. It doesn't mean we don't encourage one another in our marriages. We do. But ultimately, the the approval and the affirmation that we seek isn't even found in our spouse. It's found in the Lord. Recognizing that He is the one who has placed us in this situation. Scripture tells us He actually tests us. He does not tempt us. But the, the Lord, as a loving Father, puts us through our paces, disciplines us, even and perhaps especially, to a lifelong marriage, so that we would find ultimately our affirmation not in our spouse, as important as that is, but in our Savior. For he is the one who will not run away when we come looking for him, but is always near. Always ready to hear our complaints and our cries for help. And that, that's really the biggest question, is—is, is, isn't it? The biggest question is, okay, if this is the fact, if this marriage is going through this test, where do they go from here? Will they kind of begin circling the shower drain, getting worse and worse? Or will the Lord make something out of this if they will be faithful? And that is why I love where verse 10 goes. Because, because in response to these, uh, these women of the community who say to her, oh, who's your beloved? You know, what, what makes him so special? It's like, it's like that, that sarcasm and the biting uh, nature of that remark causes the woman to wake up. Maybe literally, who knows? Causes her to wake up and like, wait a minute, who are you to knock my husband? <laughs> I, may, I may be having conflict with him, but wait a minute, he is my husband. Let me tell you what my husband is like. And she does, beginning in verse 10, uh, you know, describing uh, why she loves and why her, her husband is her man. You want to know what he's like? She says, all right, let me tell you. Verse 10, he's radiant. He's ruddy, meaning he is, he has, uh, he's healthy in his color. He's distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. Verse 11, verse 15, his legs are set on a column of gold. He, he's gold from head to toe, she says. His locks are wavy. His hair, verse 11, black as a raven. His eyes, this one you might not know what she means, verse 12, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk. What does that mean? Well, the, the, the dove's uh, comment has to do with the shape of his eyes. He, he has shapely eyes. This was a, a, a part of attraction in the ancient Middle East. You can even think of pharaohs who painted their eyes in a certain way to give it that dove-like shape. Uh, sitting by uh, baths of milk, means they're healthy, means the sclera is white. You can think of someone who's sick and the eye might be bloody colored or discolored, yellow, whatever it would be. No, he's healthy, even in the color of his eyes. His cheeks are like beds of spices. His beard is clean and well kept. His lips, his arms, verse 14, are strong. His body is polished ivory. He is well-built, muscular. His legs, including... That description, verse 15, are alabaster columns. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. If you want to compare your man to something strong and sturdy, compare him to the cedars of Lebanon. Verse 16, his mouth is most sweet. He is altogether desirable. She looks at the women at the end of that verse and says, this is my beloved. This is my husband that you were being so sarcastic about. This is my friend. Don't you love that? Yeah, she has described him, uh, you could accuse her, I suppose, of being superficial. Although, no, she's describing him as he truly is. Not merely her man, but her friend, her companion, her mate for life. Dear friends, conflict in marriage, conflict in life, conflict among brothers and sisters in Christ, conflict among siblings, whatever it is, it can either pull you apart or it could bring you together. We know what Satan wants. Satan wants the former. Satan wants conflict in your life to pull you apart, to cause your marriage to fail. What, what does Christ tell us? A house divided among, uh, against itself cannot stand. Satan knows that. Satan wants to drive that meat cleaver right through the heart of your marriage. But this woman, instead of uh, stewing on all the ways in which she could complain about her husband, reminds herself, calls to mind, and announces to those listening, no, this marriage is worth it. My man is worth it. So Congregation of Christ if you think of the commitment that this shows, commitment a that, commitment that doesn't apply when times get rough, it's not worth the paper that the marriage license was printed on. Commitment that doesn't mean anything when life gets rough isn't worth anything. But, you know, sometimes when, when times get hard, you ask yourself, why did I get married? Perhaps if you're having trouble raising your children, why did I have children? Why did I move to this place? Why did I take that job? But when times get hard and you want to say, why did I get married? Think about it. Those times are the very reasons you did get married. No one needs to commit himself or herself to another uh, to have a good time. Don't no commit, there you yes. yes, I'd love to. Sounds good. No one, no one needs to be committed to another to enjoy when when things are going well. It's precisely because there will be times when things do not get well that go well that you got married, that you had that commitment, vowed before God and one another. That's why the the marriage vows that are in sickness and in health, rich or poor, that's why those marriage vows are have lasted as long as they have because they. They are realistic. They point to those times in life when the the commitment will actually be necessary. That's when you must remind yourself that I am committed to this person for life. And then, just as a practical matter, the light of these verses encourages us, doesn't it? Uh, That we must never allow the conflict we are going through with our spouse to make us forget why we love that person. (laughs) Perhaps, uh, perhaps you've been cool to one another for years. Perhaps you've been stuck in this dream of the first half of this chapter for what you feel like is an interminable period, a cycle of never, uh, of never getting out of, of that sort of coolness between yourself and your spouse. What if you thought of even just one thing? Provide yourself with one reason for why I married this person. One thing that I love, and often if you think about one, you'll begin to think about two, three, and four. This is not again to negate the reality of conflict, of sin, of sometimes uh, sin that that needs to be uh, dealt with in, in radical ways. You know, sometimes you have to get. You know, help from a friend or from a pastor or from an elder, but that is not to say that those times are the end, if they're just a the way in which the Lord is bringing you closer to one another. So in light of this affirmation that the woman makes uh, to the community, we see that it is indeed leading to that renewal that the Lord uh, desires to see in our marriages. The first three verses of chapter 6 The chorus reappears in verse 1. We're not quite sure if they're being earnest or sarcastic once again. But in light of the woman's reaffirmation, they say, Well, where is your beloved God that we may seek it with you? Perhaps they are honestly wanting to help her now. We're not sure. But but as the answer makes clear, the woman has found her husband, hasn't she? Verse 2. My beloved has gone down to his garden to the bed of spices. This is always in this book uh, an image of intimacy, of of grazing among the lilies. Peace has been restored. So friends, whether it is in marriage, whether it is in a relationship you have at work, relationship with your children, with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, your neighbor around uh, the corner, The application in each one of these situations is the same. Friends, we can praise the Lord that despite the conflicts in our own lives, we have a Savior who does not push us away. We have a Savior that despite our sin does not flee and make himself hard to find book of Isaiah, the Lord comes to his people who have sinned again and again. Isaiah is all about the coming judgment of the Lord. He says, despite that, I have redeemed you. I have bought you back. You are mine. Isaiah 43, I have called you by name. I have vowed myself to you. I have put myself, my name on you. There is nothing that can cleave that relationship. It was our sins. It was our rebellion. It was our making the things in life that are good, doing all that we can to, to ruin them and to bring conflict. And it was all those things that were nailed to the cross. Did, did that drive Christ away? No, he went willingly. What did he tell the disciples in the garden? I could have gotten out of this. I could have called down more than 12 legions of angels. Well, I will let nothing separate myself from my task of loving you, of indeed pouring out my very life for you. We are his forever. In glory, Revelation tells us, our foreheads will be emblazoned with his name. He will put himself on us forever. So as we walk in this life now, we have that promise confirmed each and every day. Again, not pretending that conflict doesn't exist. Not pretending like we don't sin. That's the whole reason uh, we prayed Psalm 32 this morning. When I pretended like everything was okay, my bones wasted, my body turned to dust. But when I opened my mouth and confessed my sin, he renewed uh, my uh, the sense of what has always been true. That I am his and he is mine. If the wife... <laughs> If the wife in Song of Solomon 6, verse 3 can say, I am my beloved, that my beloved is mine, then so can Christ. So can Christ look at you and say, I am my beloved. I belong to the body, and it belongs to me. And If Christ can say that about us, we can say that about him. That we are his beloved. We are his. And he is mine. He is ours forever. No matter what. That's the confidence. That's the hope we have as we face any conflict in this world. Nothing separate us from that fact. That he is ours. And we are his. Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful for a a word of yours that that reminds us that we don't need to pretend. We don't need to put on airs with you. We do not need uh, to present any self-righteousness before your throne. but that we could rest fully upon Christ. Lord, not only has he promised to make us his own, but he has done it. Not only has he promised to see us through to the end, he is doing it even now. Renewing us day by day by his presence, by his word, by his answers to our prayers, by his gathering us together with the saints of this place. So we ask that that would encourage us, that would transform our way of thinking in our hearts, that we would not be doubtful, that we would not be discouraged despite our sin, that we would be in love with our Savior, and ever more grateful for Him as we behold all that He is to us. We pray this in His name. Amen.